Welcome back to the Travel Commando Podcast. A friend of mine told me the title of this episode was really morbid and depressing. I said, what happier sentiment could there be, right? If I go tomorrow, cool, I'm good. And I'm there largely because of travel. Who would be disappointed to reach a stage at which he or she could say, I'm happy with what I've done. I want to live as long as I can, but from here, everything is extra. It's okay if I don't have it. So yeah, it's okay if I die. I mean, I don't want to die of COVID on a respirator or anything, but it's okay if I do. I've enjoyed a lot of great adventuring, and I've learned so many things with time to put them to use. Okay, travel is a school with an infinite number of classrooms, and as far as I'm concerned, if you don't go out and examine other perspectives and look at your own culture and perspective through other people's eyes, then you might as well be consuming pellets through a hole in the wall. Okay, I've lived through a few eras of travel. It's not like it used to be. See, I can remember flying on TWA as a little child when Listen, if you were born after September 11th, hold on to something heavy for a moment. The pilots would let kids into the cockpit while the plane was at the gate. To this day, I still remember doing that, a couple of times, and I still have the wings which the pilots pinned on me. I had an amazing experience recently, illustrative of the differences and connections between that age and this one. TWA flight crews used to hand out a particular toy during flights. All right. Any child who wanted one could have one. Now, contemplate for a moment what a child takes onto a plane today. A supercomputer, right? An entertainment dynamo. The bridge of the Starship Enterprise. There's no need for a toy. Imagine handing this out to today's kids. The toy was called the Magic Board. It was made of cardboard and plastic. It was flat and folded open to expose a black top panel and a lower panel on which were placed geometrically shaped stickers, which the child could pull off and place onto the black panel. I'm talking about squares, circles, and triangles, people. Okay, there was even a handy guide drawn around the border of the toy providing examples. Like like the use of two circles and a triangle to make a snowman with a nose. Yeah, that was real. That was a different age. Today is like Logan's Damn Run seemed then. Okay, so... I was thinking about the magic board recently and wishing that I had a way to show it to people. I was getting very sentimental. And then the obvious realization hit me. I reached into my pocket, grabbed the supercomputer, and bought two magic boards. There are pics on my Instagram. And by the way, you know what didn't occur back then? Bullshit carry-on problems. Yeah, People never, ever heard, um, we're halfway through boarding and running out of overhead space, we're asking for volunteers to check their carry-ons. That didn't happen. There was never a need to put your ship between your feet. Airlines made sure nothing oversized went on board, and people who were flying 
you're not going to believe this, understood the rule and followed it. I'll give you a minute. There was no internet. What the hell is an internet? Cell phone? Isn't that kind of small, right? You had to buy your tickets on the phone or at the airport. It seems almost crazy. But for those younger people who are listening now, someday you'll feel this way about the internet and booking online. All right. I guess, uh, hmm. I guess the first forays out into the world, the first ones I really remember anyway, were family trips to Chicago, getting those wings and magic boards. But I believe that when I was four years old, my parents took me to Puerto Penasco and Mexico City. Okay, however, my only memory of the trip is the Zocalo, which I may be superimposing over what might have simply been a cathedral in a border town. I say that because I know for sure we did that kind of stuff. And camping, which meant exploring. I loved it. I loved camping when I was a kid. Running creeks, watching seams of crowd drift across spiny tree lines, listening to other campers tell stories, wildlife, primo. And then when I was 12, Huntington Beach, the Santa Monica Pier, the Queen Mary, San Diego, and of course the flights. I began to ask myself, why would anyone not do this? Right? There was a whole world out there. I consider this, by the way, to be my first beach trip. Uh, Huntington Beach, as I have no memory of Puerto Penasco or, you know, <clears throat> Rocky Point. And a few years after this, my parents took me on a trip through the Painted Desert and the Petrified Forest. My horizons were expanding. Looking at the brightly colored concentric rings of those tree stumps and contemplating their age and that process was like being a junior scientist in the field. I developed a lifelong taste for the feeling. We also went to Moctezuma's castle. Fascinating. This was my first experience with ruins. My mind ran down hundreds of different lines of reasoning regarding the structures, the people who had occupied them, and what their lives may have been like. It was strangely the case, though, that to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of the site was the presence of enormous beehives and a tremendous population of bees. You enjoy what you enjoy once you're there, right? We also visited Sedona. Um, I've been there a handful of times now. Among people who would have once been called New Age thinkers, Sedona has long had a reputation as the location of multiple vortices, insert mental quotation marks if you wish, um, which affect people's awareness and their perception of the world. Okay, here we go. Is there something going on in Sedona? Is there something strange happening? In particular in Oak Creek Canyon. I have this to say about that. Yes. Now, I'm not prepared to say it's mysticism or that 
there are portals to other realms, but yeah, being in Sedona feels like something I don't understand is happening to me. I could say the same of a particular beach in Hawaii, or really of Hawaii in general. Sedona's beauty defies words and aggravates poets. Of course, I haven't been there in a very long time. Perhaps I should be stating that in the past tense, but perhaps not. Go break your ass on Slide Rock if it's still an option. I did. You know, to this day, I think the best sky vistas I have seen in my life are in the western U.S. Sunsets as well. Others pale in comparison. Um, Or suck in comparison. When I was little, the family made numerous drives from the west coast to the Midwest and back. Um, So... You know, basically before I could reach the pedals, I had an appreciation of the interstate system and of the delightful variations in the geology of my country. I'm so grateful for all of that. Okay, it gave me a relatively decent foundation from which to launch myself as an adult explorer. By the time I was able to travel on my own, I knew the world was full of magic and I knew which tricks I wanted to see, and that I would discover many others. When I was approximately 20, I went on two different trips to San Francisco, and that was like, wow, I had seen a little bit of poverty. I can't remember if I had seen homelessness, but I had definitely never seen anything like that. Market Street, baby. I think those experiences prepared me in a very small way, if anything could, for what I would see many years later in Africa. I just... Maybe not. All my life I always wanted to be a Parisian. Get the reference? It's not exactly true, but I did always want to go to Paris. I wanted to walk it. To shake hands with it to feel its beat. So, the moment I could, I did. The experience was so much more than I expected, partially because of encountering people from all over Europe non-stop. It was like drinking from the water cannon that I would one day see used on a crowd in the Netherlands. One of the lessons I learned on this trip was If you can be the place, everything is better. If you can be the place, everything is better. When you get to your first big one, you'll know what I mean. I wanted a side trip outside of France, okay? And I definitely wanted to travel by high-speed train. That was very novel to me. All right. Amsterdam had always appealed to me. I had never seen a canal city and the museums and the architecture. When I saw that it was a four-hour train ride from Paris by high-speed train with a bar car, ding, ding, baby, and first class was remarkably affordable. So I step out of the train station in Amsterdam and find not a cab in sight, like nothing. From off to my right, I hear, you know, 
Hey, are you looking for a taxi? I turn and see a big-ass red-headed dude. He was Dutch, his name was Fritz, and he had also just gotten off a train. He was coming home from college in Canada. He told me to walk with him and that he'd show me where to find a taxi when the station stands were empty. Not only did he take one of my bags, he saved my life. While standing in the street, we were conversing with some people on the sidewalk. I should mention, by the way, <laughs> Fritz is much taller than I am, okay? So we're talking with these people, and I feel Fritz's hand inside my waistband. Okay, like the back of my pants. And uh, I thought he might have been, like, looking for a date. But he shoved me up onto the sidewalk as a tram whizzed by. Fritz literally saved my life, and he carried my bag. What a guy, right? So what did I learn right then and there? Keep in mind, this guy was returning from college elsewhere. Represent your country well and help other travelers. Okay, so... I have American friends who ask me how I can possibly feel comfortable in places where the culture is significantly different. Um, like where I can't read anything. I can't really keep up with the spoken language either. You know, all of that. I get some listener mail about that too. Look, in some ways it's not totally different from like growing up in Louisiana and moving to New, uh, New York. Um, or growing up in Chicago and moving to, I'll say, Bisbee, Arizona, okay? On some very basic levels, it's like that, all right? But there are differences, right? I've been to places where people can get killed for tiny screw-ups. How do I ensure, or if not ensure, hedge my bet that uh, I will not, in, uh, that I won't hit a cultural foul ball on foreign soil? I practice. I try to find and practice these little habits. In what I will respectfully call Islamic countries, the display of one's shoe sole is considered to be quite ill-mannered. Before my first trip to that part of the world, I practiced sitting with my feet flat on the floor. If I caught myself crossing a leg, I checked that. All right. One evening I was talking with a hotel manager. We'd been through several interesting conversations together, and I caught myself sitting cross-legged. I apologized, and he waved it off, but I could see that the awareness was meaningful to him. All right. I also prepare for safety. If you're from North America and you visit um, Egypt, you should brush your teeth with bottled water. You should not open your mouth in the shower. I practiced those habits. Okay. I also find out before leaving if giving little gifts to children is appropriate, and if so, what kind uh, or kinds of gifts. You know, hand a kid in Brussels a pen and get a <laughs> bewildered look in response. Hand a kid in Giza a pen and make a friend for life. Just not a kid who's trying to sell you something. I sometimes take it to the level of learning the differences between American hand gestures and gestures associated with the destinations I'm visiting. If you've seen Inglorious Bastards, you know what I mean. I incorporate them into my life about a month before departure, sometimes more. 
If you haven't experienced this type of immersive study, can you imagine what it's like to be in another country, aware that someone with whom you're about to interact knows you're an American, and to speak a really well-composed and accepted uh, native phrase in a very good accent to that individual, and then witness that moment of surprise and comprehension immediately preceding that individual's excited reply to you in the local language, it's awesome, gratifying, and addictive. I am so happy to have been through these exercises, okay, and put them to use. So, there's something I've learned through this process, right? And it's to assume that both details and nuances in other cultures are important and to practice observing them. And hey, there's the other side. I have spoken what I thought were well-composed phrases only to have people look at me with expressions, you know, conveying an unmistakable response. What the hell are you saying? Right? It happens. I laugh and pursue the opportunity for education. One of the peak moments in my travel life consisted of stepping from the Valley Temple next to the Sphinx onto the causeway to the Pyramid of Khafre and looking to the right to find the Sphinx there with the Great Pyramid behind it. That is as good as it gets in some ways, okay? And hold up. I was able to enjoy the experience on a level which may not occur to you. The few people there were not from that part of the globe or from mine. I saw two saris and a few of the um, ubiquitous little white hats we all know, right? I was the only American. That added to the feeling of awe and, of course, um, augmented the understanding that I was very, very far from home. I've learned that some travel stereotypes are real. All right. Drunk British guys in Amsterdam. I heard a, huh, I heard about that before visiting. All right. I didn't find lots of videos or anything. Then I got there and was like, what the shit? Yes. It was actually quite something to see. As if they lived each moment of life like it was a punk rock concert in the 80s. All right. And when you're traveling, there's almost always a laugh to be enjoyed. I've mentioned this before, but it's certainly worth a repeat. I was in Laidse Plain, Amsterdam, which smelled quite strongly of weed. I was literally staring at a coffee shop and thinking, I can't believe I can smell it from here. And then I turned around and saw a Ben and Jerry's ice cream parlor. Location, location, location. Amsterdam is just a nice place, okay? And I'm scared that eventually tourists will screw it up like Venice. And, um, yeah, let me take just a moment here to step outside my narrative and offer this. <clears throat> Due to the lack of tourism... Physical conditions in Venice are improving for the first time in decades. Before any of this virus problem began, 
I was a vocal proponent of removing Venice from cruise itineraries. Okay, this is an ideal time to work that out. Just saying. I do have to admit, though, that I have not been able to effectively study the effect which this action would have on retail merchants and restaurants in Venice. All right. Perhaps my suggestion will not earn me any friends among those groups. I'm trying to find out more about the situation. At the sites of Egypt, one of the things that kept bouncing back into my mind like a rubber ball was the idea of being a wanderer in the desert and just walking up on this scene. Wow! It would sit you right down in the sand. I also couldn't help thinking, you know, what if all of this was actually about something that we would find absolutely loathsome and contemptible today? We venerate this site and these structures. What if the site was actually centered around slavery or human sacrifice or, you know, what is some other bizarre ritual? I mean, I have a picture of the Sphinx in my bedroom and I have no certainty regarding the structure's meaning. Okay? But the chance to contemplate these things, you know, not from a chair 5,000 miles away, not in a library, but out there, between the pyramids, next to the Sphinx, in the temples. I just invented the phrase Robert Schocken and Graham Hancocken, although I do not consider that to be what I was doing. It's just mind-expanding, okay, and kind of devastating at the same time. What was this place? It feels almost like losing something, okay? Where the hell is it? it standing there and trying to figure it out, I mean, it, there's a quality to it that's like losing your car keys and trying to find them, okay? I won't try to explain it more precisely than that at this time. I really regret losing touch with some of the people who I've met while traveling. Tito from Egypt, English Ray. Man, it'd be wild to walk out of a train station and have Fritz walk up to me now. If I ever see little Yosef in Giza again, he'll probably be running a hotel. <laughs> Danielle, Mama Donna, and Aunt Nat. Hey, Francesca. When I was growing up, my best friend and I were into travel posters, okay? I had a Paris poster in my room. My best friend had an Egypt poster in his. The poster was of the Sphinx and the Pyramid of Khafre at night during the sound and light show. There is a photograph of us in front of his Egypt poster when we were in junior high. I was so proud to stand in Giza many, many years later and snap a pic of myself on a balcony overlooking the Sphinx and the pyramids, holding that photograph and text that picture to him. I saw and heard that show way, way too many times, by the way. And back to cell phones, when we had those posters, cell phones? <laughs> nope, nothing like them. We would have been very interested in knowing they were coming, though. You know who had something like that back then? Mr. Spock. You had to be cruising through the galaxy on a starship, 
to have something like a cell phone, only a cell phone is better, because Mr. Spock couldn't send Uhura pictures of his junk. All right. I remember realizing in the sixth grade that I was going to see the great museums of the world, the Smithsonian, the Louvre, the Rijksmuseum, Frank Lloyd Wright Museums, the Egyptian Museum. I am so, so delighted to have seen that one before the building of the new Grand Egyptian Museum. I grew up with the original in mind, and hey, Indiana Jones. Okay, museums in England, all across the USA, I love them. I admit, though, that I was seven-eighths dead and a little bit psychotic by the time I got out of the Louvre. I really think there is a three-way tie for the most comfortable museums I've visited. However, I do have leanings toward number one and number three just because of furniture and other features. I would say number one, the Smithsonian National Gallery. Number two, the Rijksmuseum. Number three, the Van Gogh Museum. The least comfortable museum that comes to mind is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, and I'm referring specifically to the one on the National Mall. The reason for this ranking is purely crowding, okay? It's just packed with people and exhibits, that's all. I mean, there's so much there that they had to open another branch off of the National Mall. I think that speaks volumes, and I'm certainly not saying you should avoid the museum. You should definitely go, but it's a little uncomfortable at times, all right? I received a piece of listener mail asking me about the worst traffic I had ever seen. Now, <laughs> that's kind of like asking me about the best concert I've ever seen. I have to take Pink Floyd off the list, all right, because it's a whole different thing. Okay, so subtracting Cairo and Giza from the list, either Atlanta or Dubai. Okay, I have spent three and a half hours crossing Atlanta. This happened multiple times. And on my second visit to Dubai, I had booked a hotel which was just under five miles from the airport, and reaching that hotel took exactly one hour. Okay, Compared to these experiences, being around Parisian traffic seemed lame. I'm very grateful to have been to an Olympics, an Olympic Games. I always wanted to go, and I was lucky enough to attend the 1996 Atlanta Games. But get this. This really happened. I was staying with friends well outside Atlanta, I just knew, okay, that I was going to talk my buddy into going, but he was not interested. I couldn't believe it. I had extra tickets and everything, but nope. We drank beer until late at night and had a great time, though. I woke up on the day I was supposed to go, and this is what I heard coming from the television in the living room uh, through the bedroom wall. There has been what appears to be a bombing in Centennial Park. Yeah. That was the day I went to the Olympics, and that was the first time I had ever seen, like, large numbers of guys with machine guns, okay? They were all on ATVs along the freeway embankments, and I wanted to go visit, I think, um, House of Blues, 
and couldn't get there because there was just this mass of heavily armed dudes. Okay? I haven't thought about that in a really long time. That was a very heavy day. That was the day I learned that we never know what can happen to a vacation at any point, a lesson which has been reinforced repeatedly. I have been almost home and had things go terribly wrong. If you've heard me orate about Pompeii, you probably know that I was atop Vesuvius in a cloud freezing like hell with almost zero visibility and trying to fend off freezing rain with a shoddy umbrella that cost three euro. Right? You never know. My nine-hour trip home from London took 26 hours. I know people who got stuck in India on the way home from their honeymoon. Okay, on their way home to the United States, stuck in India. All right, September 11th stranded thousands of travelers. I know of people who went in together and bought vans to come home from Las Vegas on September 12th. There's the Icelandic volcano situation and, of course, COVID. But, uh, you know, I digress significantly here. I was at the Olympics. Everything else was great, except that it rained during the afternoon event I was attending. But I saw Jackie Joyner Kersey run. Okay. I had a ticket for the night session, but didn't stay. And I don't remember if it was because of being worn out or because of the rain. All right. I mean, it was raining in my beer. Uh, and I missed the night session during which Linford Christie got red-carded and lost it. I watched it all happen on TV knowing I could have been there. It is what it is. Another travel lesson you sometimes have to accept. Uh, I think that maybe the most important thing I've learned about travel is this. Show you care. Just show you care. Um... Learn at least a little bit of the language. If it's a language which you can't read, memorize several phrases phonetically. Just doing these things should enhance the trip for you in many ways and will enhance the experience of your hosts and the locals you meet. I've been very lucky, you know. I've been able to roll in my love of architecture and to become convinced that religious architecture tends to be our greatest with respect to design, okay? And I've been able to tour the world and look at religious architecture. And having been exposed to many religions, I will say this about religion in general. I believe that the some expression or goal or what should be the some expression or goal of all religions has never been more articulately presented than it was by Bill. As in Bill and Ted, be excellent to each other. So do I have anything to say about the pandemic, right? I'll say a couple of things. A while back, I was sort of lost in the memory of sipping Prosecco and Sorrento on the beach at sunset. I kind of have this little poetry thing always going on, and as I thought of that experience, this poem appeared in my head. Do you know how good this was? How good life was? 
There was honey in the streets, and it tasted like the sun. What have we done? Are Prosecco sunsets gone to stay? Who took the golden road away? And I'll say this. I spent a little bit of time in North Africa a few years ago. I came home from that trip with a new understanding of being grateful for what I had. I'm learning that lesson in yet another way from the pandemic. Say you work in what I, a call center, okay? I am certain that before COVID, you never thought about what the people in the cafeteria really mean to you, right? That security guard you can't stand? I'll bet you'd be happy to see your teammates now and to walk by him with a smile every time, yeah? So for now, that's what I have to say about that. And I'm going to move on to listener mail. This question comes from Teddy in, yes, Apache Junction, Arizona. Is there anything I could kick myself in the ass for not having done? Well, no. Here I reference the title of this episode. Okay, but there is one thing that's always nagged at me. It's not precisely travel-related, but I do wish that I had gone to a space shuttle launch. However, the very reasons for which I never went to a launch do themselves prevent me from hating the fact that I didn't see a launch. It was a long trip, okay, and quite a lot to go through after reaching the area for an experience which had a fairly high percentage chance of being called off. All right, there's, uh, there's an old saying about making that trip, plan a trip to Florida, hope to see a shuttle launch. Okay, I've been to Florida several times. The, uh, my best friend um, saw the Challenger explode when she was in high school, so you never knew what you were going to get. I didn't see a space shuttle launch. Okay, but I did see a man wearing nothing but a cloth diaper washing his armpits for tips in Las Vegas. I did see the Eiffel Tower from Notre Dame. I did follow a trail of water bottles, and I mean full, sealed bottles, down a desert highway for miles to find that it ended in a tumbled and wrecked bottled water transport truck lying in a shallow gully. That was interesting. Then I missed my exit. I had to go 52 miles out of my way, and my car overheated. They can't all be winners, kid. I did pee in a hallway in France. I did eat Italian food in Italy where it's just food, but they know what they have. So if my lights go out tomorrow, it's okay. See what I mean? I hope they don't. I hope that I run into you in some fantastic place sometime next year. I had to cancel three trips for this year. I would have enjoyed meeting you on any one of them. Travel Commando out. <laughs> 